introspection is important. Looking in the mirror is important and trying to discover what part of whatever your challenge or your struggle is on you. At the end of the day, as much as Boston Children's offered learning and development and you built relationships with other managers and leaders, the only person that's responsible for your development is you. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, you are ultimately responsible. And, you know, I think sometimes young leaders in particular may blame the organization. They didn't prepare me for this. Then my response when someone comes to me is always the same. Well, how are you preparing yourself? Welcome to the Health Leader Forge. My name is Mark Bonica, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Health Management and Policy at the University of New Hampshire. Today's guest is Jason Dupuy, the Chief Patient Experience Officer for PM Pediatrics Health. In this podcast, we talk about Jason's early career at Boston Children's, where he rose to the director of the emergency department before he was 30, and then how he got a job with PM Pediatrics when it was an emerging pediatrics urgent care chain because he had written his master's thesis on the need for pediatrics urgent care in Massachusetts. When the founders heard what he had written, they told him to write his own job description. I had a lot of fun with this interview because Jason is also an alumnus of my department's undergraduate program, and I've known him for several years, though I had never had a chance to hear his whole story until now. I hope you also enjoy this podcast, and if you do, won't you leave us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you might be listening. It helps other people discover us. Thanks for listening, and here is Jason Dupuy. Welcome to the podcast, Jason. Oh, thanks, Mark. It's always a pleasure. To, it's always a pleasure to see you and always a pleasure to have an opportunity to share a bit of my story with anyone that wants to listen. But uh, I followed your podcast, so it's it's a true honor to uh, to actually be here uh, and have an opportunity to share. Well, thanks. And I'm going to share real quick. Jason and I had gone for about 20 minutes and I realized I hadn't hit the record button. So this is a terrible way to get started, but a little bit humorous. Uh, so, <laughs> so here we go. Um, so Jason, you graduated from UNH with a degree in health management and policy, which is of course the program I teach into. What brought you to UNH and specifically what brought you to your interest in healthcare? Yeah, so a couple of different things. I was is my unorthodox story about my uh, about my pathway, but um, you know, I grew up with a dad in the army, so I moved around quite a bit. But both his family and my mom's family both lived in New Hampshire, and so growing up, we always our vacations in the summer or whenever we, my dad was on uh, took leave, we would always go to New Hampshire. And so when it as I uh, was approaching graduation or uh, prior to graduation in high school, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I was like, you know what? I want to go to school in New Hampshire. That was where we always went on vacations, the beach, the mountains. And so it really wasn't UNH as a school. It was really just the environment and the place. And then I remember seeing the campus and I was like, this is it. Now, interestingly, also from the from on the military side, my dad, uh, you know, was a was a medic and and worked in the in the military healthcare system, and so I kind of grew up around hospitals and and always, uh, you know, felt like I was very comfortable in them and wanted an opportunity to pursue a career in healthcare. But I started off as an athletic training major at UNH and then uh, went undeclared liberal arts for a little while and then uh, trying to figure out my pathway. And then as I was flipping through the course catalog, it was on paper at the time, we didn't really use the internet for that yet. And um, I remember I saw health management policy and read about it. And uh, I set up, a, set up a meeting with Dick Lewis, who was at the time the chair of the program uh, for health management policy. And I uh, went and met with him in his office and he was looking through my transcripts. And I just remember saying, I think you'd be a great fit for this program. And, um, you know, we had a great conversation. And, and uh, as we were starting to kind of wrap up, you know, I saw him look at his computer screen and he said to me, 
a plane just crashed into a building in New York. And uh, so I actually, I enrolled in health management policy or was officially into the program on September 11th, 2001. So I'll never forget it. That was where I was when uh, that event started. But, you know, to this day, it's always uh, been a, a, for me to look back, there's a little bit of a positive spin. It was the day that I kind of found my path and found my way forward. And, you know, maybe in some ways it was serendipitous because my path forward was to go into a career to help people that were hurt, sick, injured, you know, et cetera. And so it was really kind of a blessing and it kind of all came together at UNH with HMP for me. And, you know, it's uh, it's been near and dear to my heart ever since. So you graduated in 2003 and your first job was at Boston Children's Hospital, where you actually ultimately wound up working for about 13 years, rising from administrative associate in the Department of Cardiology to director of admitting and emergency services. So I want to talk a little bit about that that first half of your career and your journey at Boston Children's. So what drew you to Boston Children's? Yeah, so... You know, towards the end of the health management policy, the HMP program, you know, we were in the capstone and everyone was trying to figure out what they were going to do. And I didn't really know. I didn't really have a good sense. There wasn't, I didn't have a clear path. I didn't say, you know, I definitely want to do this. I did know I wanted to work in a hospital. Uh, That was kind of a target or a goal for me. And I I remember uh, one of our professors, Jim Lewis, and he, at the time, they used to read jobs out loud in class. So we were in the capstone and at the beginning of class, he read out, you know, this job at Boston Children's in the Department of Cardiology. And I remember hearing it and I was like, that sounds like me. That sounds like pediatrics. I, you know, I grew up, I was a kid. I used to go to the hospital. I got hurt a fair amount per my mother's report, but I broke a lot of bones and spent a lot of time in the hospital. And, and then I would also go visit my dad because I could ride my bike there from our house. And so I would go visit my dad in the hospital and realize, you know what, maybe I can help kids, you know, feel better or more comfortable in the hospital. And so pediatrics just really started resonating for me uh, as a function. And so I applied to the job and it was actually through uh, Bridget Stewart, also a health management policy alum who kind of gave me my first shot working in cardiology and, uh, you know, forever grateful. And and Bridget and I have maintained a friendship to this day. And I've always had a tremendous amount of appreciation for her for giving me that first chance and and exposing me to pediatrics and and the opportunity to work with kids, you know, and that, that has become my passion. Uh, So I'm I'm tremendously grateful for that. Yeah. So, so I wanted to ask you a little bit about this without dwelling on, on this first job too much, you know, it's the job, it's the kind of job that most of our grads or many of our grads go into. So what was it that you learned during that first role that helped shape kind of your future and and your desire to continue in the field? Yeah. So there was actually, there's probably two big things. The first was that I really gave me an appreciation or an understanding of the role of an administrative person in healthcare interacting with patients and families. So I answered phone calls and scheduled appointments. And, you know, when you hear that stuff, you don't necessarily appreciate or realize the importance of that work to the whole care delivery process, getting people into the system seamlessly, getting them access to appointments and helping them solve problems when they're scared, afraid, worried, concerned, those sorts of things. And I was in cardiology. So we're dealing with cardiac issues. You know, these aren't small, you know, it's not a rash, you know? So, so getting that sort of appreciation of the part you're playing in the delivery of important care was definitely right out of the gate. Something I noticed bigger picture was really getting involved in a care team and it was my first real exposure to working with a group of physicians and physician assistants. We used, uh, we used both and just an unbelievable group of people that really helped me see and understand how I can be involved in the care delivery team. And they showed me a tremendous amount of respect in my role and what I was trying to do and gave me, you know, to their credit, a lot of autonomy around things. And so I just learned early on, not only the role I played in helping them deliver care, 
but the importance of the team and, and including everybody on the team, no matter their role, title, degree, it doesn't matter, you know, and they right. did that right out of the gate for a new college grad like me. And to this day, I'm still in touch with them too. And, and, you know, I have a tremendous amount of gratitude for that first opportunity. I mean, I always say between Bridget and, and this group that I worked with, if it wasn't for them, I don't know what would have happened to me. I mean, they gave me my chance and allowed me to discover my passion, you know, and, and, and that for me is, you know, the most amazing thing. And I made this comment earlier when you, you told me that I, it, it strikes me. I have seen, you know, a lot of organizations where the divide between the administrative and the clinical staff is really profound. And even like between the, pro, the providers and the nurses or, yeah. or the, the docs and, and PAs and the nurses and the, you know, like there's this triumvirate that they, yeah. you know, they don't work. It, the, the relationships are not always at that, that yeah. smooth. Yeah. And, and look, I've been, I've definitely been exposed to that in other roles and positions in my career, even at Boston Children's. And, you know, and that's why I think in some ways I'm so grateful for that first opportunity where it didn't jade me, you know, and make me think that it's impossible. And I think sometimes if you start out in a place that's tricky or difficult as you're navigating that, you get that feeling like this is what, this is how it works and it can be disheartening, you know? And so I guess there's some fortune I had in that of not being exposed to that right out of the gate. And actually being exposed to a very cohesive, collaborative team that really appreciated and uh, being around each other as people, as humans, you know, and uh, we had a ton of fun. I mean, we were always, you know, we'd go to dinner and drinks and, you know, and, and a lot of my peers and stuff simply didn't have that. So uh, I hope, you know, I, I surmise too over time people learn that. But yeah, no, it was definitely, I definitely saw the other side of it that you're describing. It definitely exists. And the lesson I took away, which I think I shared earlier too, is the importance of me remembering that and trying to make sure that I manage myself in those situations, that I don't become part of the problem, that I keep myself as part of the solution. You know, yeah. and I think that that's that's that became paramount for me in my career. You know, you mentioned like learning to answer the phone, and just triggered a. a uh, I had did an interview with John Fernandez, who's the CEO of Mass Eye and Ear. And prior to coming to Mass Eye and Ear, he was the COO of the Brigham. And he said, people used to come in his office and they would say, I, you know, one of those classic, like, what do I need to do to be you someday? And he said, well, do you like, he, he said he would always ask, do you like answering the phone? Um, and yeah, so you, like you know, and, he, and people would be like, why? And he's like, well, if, if you're going to be the COO, you have to care about you know, all the way yeah. down to, to that, that interaction where you're bringing people into the system and doing it well. And that's, that's the kind of, of, you know, that's like the entry to the operation side. Right? I got to tell you that that's an amazing statement because, and I say this all the time, even in my, my role today, it's sure. kind of like, you know, if you really want to understand it, go where the work is done and even better do it because then you actually will have an appreciation right. Uh, of what it's like to actually have to manage that and navigate that. No, I think that's pretty profound actually for yeah. a CEO, for a COO to say that or CEO and a COO to say that, you know, I think it's pretty profound. I thought it was pretty interesting insight. I thought it would resonate with you. Yeah. So did you, I mean, did you really decide at this point, like you really liked operations? Yeah. So I definitely realized that I appreciated, yeah, the administrative operations stuff. I, I, I learned pretty quickly that, you know, like finance. And that was like, I, I was interested in learning it, but I did not want to focus in it. Uh, I realized that I loved, yeah, operational sort of stuff. And, you know, I think administratively, you find yourself in a, in a cool position where you get to interact with everybody. So you almost become not to overinflate 
administration, but you almost become a hub of a communication wheel. And you often have a lot of relationships with a lot of different people in different areas doing different things. And, and that could be leveraged. And I think, you know, so for me, I think once I saw how the operations worked, I, I really appreciated the systems and how you could improve a system, whether it be through F for access or other things. So yeah, definitely, definitely sparked my, my mind on operations and a desire to do it. So pretty quickly, uh, just three years, um, you were promoted to ambulatory administrative coordinator within the department, where you took on your first supervisory role, overseeing 20 administrative associates, which is the role you had just had. And that's a huge jump in scope. So I was, um, so I wanted to have you talk a little bit about what was it like making that jump to such a large well, level of responsibility. I, I think for me, it was always like, at first it was just terrifying. I mean, you get excited <laughs> and you, you know, you get the job, right. You earn right. the job, you work for it, you interview, you go through the process and you're like, yes, I got it. And then you start doing it. And it, it quickly for me anyways, became somewhat terrifying. And the primary reason was that all of the sudden you were managing all of your former peers. And that transition from peer to manager, I think is one of the gets often overlooked in organizations because of the level of leadership it's at. Um, it's that entry level leadership position. And a lot of organizations just simply don't pay a ton of attention to preparing those people for those roles. And, you know, going from a peer to everyone's manager, you know, is, is a pretty wild experience and became pretty, pretty terrifying. And, um, you know, it hurt some, I had friendships that I had to sever because once I started kind of understanding what was going on and, you know, I had to make a lot of decisions and do a lot of things to improve that. So it was, you know, it was hard. It was a really, really hard transition. I had a tremendous amount of support. No, don't get me wrong, but it was, I didn't do it alone. And uh, there's many people on that list to thank, but, um, you know, that supported me through that. But uh, that transition from peer to manager has to go down as one of the most difficult points or moments of my career uh, was that transition. I'll never forget how hard it was. And I think uh, I would just encourage everyone never don't underestimate that transition. You know, it's, it's going to be gnarly and it's going to be challenging. Now you were telling a story a minute ago about how you went to a training session and, and got some advice. So tell, tell, tell that again. That's part of what we lost, but, but tell it again. So, So, no, yeah, no, of course, of course, you know, uh, so while I was going through my struggle of transition, I, um, one of the, you know, Boston Children's has uh, had, has, I don't know what they offer currently, but I'm sure it's still pretty robust learning and development program. And one of the things that was relatively new at the organization was this thing, a a class called the manager's five part, which kind of covered fundamental sort of leadership management stuff. And its intention was for all manager, anyone in a manager or supervisory position could attend this. And it was relatively new. And so I signed up for it. Uh, And it was led by a guy named Alan Perrette. And um, to this day, Alan is one of my mentors. He's always been my mentor. Um, he, he denies that he's my mentor. He says, I'm, he says I am his mentor, but uh, we, uh, we both know that that's false. Uh, maybe that's a sign of a good mentor. But, you know, that first class, I didn't know Alan from anything, and he was relatively new to the organization. And uh, in the, there were five sessions, each were two hours. And in the first session, in the first 20 minutes, Alan was talking about Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, which now is... 20 some years old, but at the time was hot. You know, that was what everybody was reading and talking about. And, and in there, one of the things that Jim Collins talks about is getting the right people on the bus and getting the wrong people off the bus. And I literally raised my hand as he's talking about getting the right people on the bus. And I said, some of the effect of Alan, I don't have any issue getting the right people on the bus. And my statement, by the way, for that was I was confident and comfortable in the people I was hiring. So I was like, they aren't my problem. I said, you know what my problem is? Getting the wrong people off the bus. I have all of these people and they're not doing their jobs, et cetera. 
And the, you know, the tables and the chairs were set up in a U and Alan came from the front of the class to where I was sitting, got in my face almost, not physically, but like got close enough and he put his finger out. Now, never forget it. And he said, you know what? You're the problem. I think you are the problem. Ouch. And yeah, it was a stinger, right? And, um, <laughs> you know, interestingly, it shut me up for the rest of the five sessions. I say interestingly, because anybody that knows me, so if anyone's listening, knows me that I shut up for nine and a half hours, you know, sitting in there you know, it might be a little shocked by that. But, um, you know, it really caught me off guard. Probably a couple months later, I was in the cafeteria at Boston Children's and I saw Alan and I went over to Alan and I said, hey, I just wanted to let you know what you said to me really mattered. I've been looking in the mirror. I've been trying to be better. You're right. That was part of the problem. And so, you know, for me, the lesson there was early on, I had to learn to make sure that I was always looking in the mirror. What part am I playing in this problem? Now, this as we move along here, you'll hear this is going to come up as a theme because this kept replicating. What part am I playing in this problem? And um, if not for Alan, I don't know that I would ever see it. And that's why I always give the credit that's due to Alan for what he did for me, because had he not done that, had he not had the, the confidence or the gumption or to really call me out, I don't know when I would have seen it. And so I've always appreciated him for doing that when I was a 24 year old new manager. Yeah. You know, it's a, it was a chance. It was a chance he took, but I, I needed to hear it, you know. Yeah, sometimes those those hard lessons are those those you know that harsh comment. You know, it does kind of shake you up. Well, a we never bit, we but... never want to think we're the problem, right? right. That's human nature, <laughs> and I think that gets forgotten sometimes, right? right? No one ever wants to well, blame themselves. I mean, I'm not yeah. Jason, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Oh it's my like god, no one ever wants to. Yeah. Yeah, no one ever wants to be the problem, right? Right, yeah. right. Well, what did, so what what lesson or or what advice would you give to that young person making that very difficult transition from individual performer to supervisor? Yeah. Well, I think, I think it really was that lesson Alan was teaching me, which was, you know, introspection is important. Looking in the mirror is important and trying to discover what part of whatever your challenge or your struggle is on you. At the end of the day, as much as Boston Children's offered learning and development and you built relationships with other managers and leaders, the only person that's responsible for your development is you. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, you are ultimately responsible. And, you know, I think sometimes young leaders in particular may blame the organization. They didn't prepare me for this. And my response when someone comes to me is always the same. Well, how are you preparing yourself? Because mm -hmm. I'll tell you what I learned from Alan. I read an HBR article every day. Five days. I don't do it on the weekends. I take the weekends off. Every morning, I call it my morning read. I go on and I find an HBR or some other article and I read it. I've been doing that for over 15 years now. And, wow. and that I learned that from Alan. And it's like, well, I'm teaching myself because I can't rely on everybody else. So I think for young leaders, start teaching yourself early and apply what you're reading, apply what you're learning and accept the fact that it's all not going to work and you're going to stumble a couple of times, you know, and then that's okay. Embrace that. Lean into that. Don't, don't worry about that. Like that. Everyone expects a young leader to make mistakes. Then I do all the young leaders that work for me. I expect them to make missteps. And you know what, when I make my missteps, I own them too. And so modeling that that's okay is really important, but I think it's really, yeah, look in the mirror, like do some introspection and teach yourself, you know, to, you're responsible for your own development. And I really believe that. So you held that role for a little over four years, and then you were promoted to the director of admitting and emergency services, which is again, another huge jump in scope uh, and responsibility. So talk a little bit about that. What was that like? <laughs> Terrifying. I don't know if that's going to be the, uh, that's gonna be the, the theme. theme. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that was a job. I'll tell you a couple of things that happened with that. And that was a job I wasn't sure I was going to get, but I really wanted. 
Um, and why did you want there, it so bad? Yeah, well, there's it's actually again unorthodox kind of stories, I guess, of what you normally hear. So I have uh, I have pretty significant ADHD, and okay. uh, one of the things. I was drawn to the emergency department because I'm like, that's where the action is that. And, and, you know, one thing I learned, by the way, not to jump ahead was if you want to see a department full of people that have ADD or ADHD, just go into the ED. We all had it. Like it was, so it was kind of a, it works though there because the environment is conducive to somebody that is easily distractible and can focus and pay attention on different things. You know, we had our issues, but so I was really drawn to the environment, but I didn't necessarily have the experience. And um, I always like to share this part. It was really hard. It was great to be promoted to a director level job when I was 29, but it was really hard because I was 29. And so there was some amount of achievement that I felt becoming a director before I was 30, but there was a tremendous amount of struggle or challenge that I had being a director under 30 now in with peers who are in their forties and fifties and have been directors for 10 years or 15 years. And so I had a little bit of imposter syndrome, like trying to fit in with that group. And the lesson I learned, which I'll share about getting that job was about three months in, I asked my manager why she picked me because I couldn't, I couldn't even figure, I myself couldn't figure it out. I was struggling. I actually almost quit after three months, true story. And uh, I was really at that. I started to be like, I'm not sure I made a right decision. And so one of the things I did early on was I asked, why'd you pick me? Like, what was it? And I always encourage everyone, every job you get, ask the hiring manager after you get it, why they chose you. Cause there's a reason they had their reasons and, you know, and I needed to hear her reasons and, you know, Fran shared them with me and um, you know, it was really helpful context of like, okay, so this is because she hired me for those reasons. Those are her expectations of me to me, you know? So it was just a huge, that was a gnarly thing because man, 24 seven ops. And- <laughs> so wait, you're going to get back up for a second. What were yeah. her reasons? What did she tell you? Yeah. So, well, it was interesting. She loved my energy. Okay. So, uh, and yeah. yep. She loved the energy and she's, and I remember her saying it's, you know, it's 24 seven here. And like, we need somebody that's got the energy, you know, to keep going and to, to really be in it with everybody. And it was energy and it was drive. Like, and she could see my passion. Like she could see that I was really upbeat and passionate about the work that they were trying to do that. I loved Boston children. So a lot of it was just kind of fed at that core level of energy and passion. And she figured anything I needed to learn about the emergency department, I would learn it you know, because of that energy and because of that passion that, that it wasn't going to be my skill deficit would close pretty quickly, you know, Mm. and and understanding it. And then the other, which I'd left out, I guess a little bit was my willingness to jump in. So it kind of goes back to where we're talking about cardiology and the team is that if somebody needed to be picked up, I could jump in. If they needed help answering the phones, I would jump in. If they, you know, I used to put the mail away all the time in cardiology and the mail bins is when we would distribute paper mail. And I would do it to help one of my staff people. And I was like, people would say, why do you do that? And I'm like, well, I'm not above any task they're doing, you know? So that willingness to keep jumping in is, it was an attractant for them of like in the ED where sometimes an extra set of hands makes the difference of flow or throughput or whatever. So yeah, no, it was a good, I'm glad you asked me that, but uh, I always tell people, ask, ask your boss why they hired you. Like they, cool. they'll tell yeah. you. And, and honestly, hidden in that is their expectation of you. That's, that's uh-huh. like, so uh-huh. you, you can level out and make sure that you're performing to what they thought, you know, or want. Yeah. So you were three months in and you were ready to throw in the towel. It was. How'd you I get was. through that? How'd you get through that slump? You know, um, and it lasted until about six months. It was three to six months, that period. And I'll, and I'll tell you what happened because I, um, it's a little vulnerable, but I always share it because I think it's important for people to hear it. And I think they always appreciate it. The, my predecessor's name was Jennifer. 
And one day I came in and there was this, uh, my office was in this little hallway that cut out from the back of the ED and there were two doors. So the only way to get into my office was through one of these two doors. And, uh, and my office was the only thing in that little hallway. It was, it used to be on call room. And one morning I came in and someone put a sign on the door that I would have to see to get into my office door, get through to where my office door was rather. And it said, we want Jennifer back. And it was one of the most hurtful things that has ever occurred in my career. Um, And I grabbed it and I ripped it off the door. I went in my office, I balled, I balled it, crumpled it up and I threw it on the floor. And, uh, and I was just completely disheartened. And I was like, I'm failing. I'm, you know, everything. So everything I thought I'd learned and, you know, understood felt like it meant nothing that I was just doing a poor job. And um, so I went to Alan and had a lot of conversations with Alan and, and he was asking me about the history of the ED. Like, so what was it like before Jennifer? Like how many people? And so I started, he was encouraging me to get the history. And so one of the things I learned uh, and ended up helping me come out of it was that I went back and I started, I was like, how many, how many me's had they had? And they had had, it was uh, four, four administrators, essentially, in seven years. And one of those administrators, Jennifer, was there for almost four. So they had just burned through administrators. And I went to Alan and Alan said, Jason, everybody's quit on them. That's the problem. People keep quitting on them. Don't quit on them. Like, it's your job. This is your, like, you've got to try and fix this. Don't be the, per- don't be the next, don't be the fifth person to quit on them in eight years, you know? Hmm. And again, it, you know, that really hit home for me. And I was like, so my choices where I could leave or I could try to fix it so that it didn't happen like that in the future. And so I took the, this is God's honest truth. I uncrumpled the piece of paper because I still had it, even though it was on the floor. And we used to have these up above our desk were these folding bins. And when you open the bin, you know, you could put books and stuff in there. And I, I unfurled that thing and I taped it. So when you open the bin, that sign was there. It sat there for my entirety of almost seven years in that job. Wow. And every time I opened the bin, it reminded me what I was trying to do. I was trying to fix it. So it didn't happen again, that no, that people didn't keep quitting on them and another leader didn't just quit. And so I ended up sticking it out. And my boss actually, I remember friends like Jason, what do you need? Because she knew I said, I'm thinking about like, I'm interviewing. I was interviewing actively in the hospital. And she said, what do you need to stay? And I said, I need a supervisor. I need somebody below me to take up some of the smaller work so I can be more strategic. And I'm sharing that because I did not ask for money because I knew money wouldn't fix the problem. I didn't, I just asked for help. That's what I was asking for. And so we figured it out. They got me a supervisor and we, we turned the, turned the barch as a result of that. And so, you know, I think it was like, it was again, one of those key moments in my career, somebody putting that sign up on the door. And, and saying God. they wanted somebody else back. Yeah, it stings. It's stings. God, man. I've been, yeah, I, I think I'd have had, I'd been on Indeed looking for. <laughs> oh, it was, it was a brutal. It was I, brutal, oh, man. It was, yeah. it was brutal. But, but it's um, really great yeah. the way you like, you like accepted it and, and kind of internalized it and like used it as a motivation. I'm, oh, yeah. Well, and you know, one of the things that I used was that I always said, like, I needed to use my hindsight, what I had learned in cardiology. And Mm -hmm. instead of applying it, use it as foresight to try and try and anticipate the issues and the challenges and the struggles that were going to come with the transition. And because in cardiology, when I made the transition, I didn't have any of that. I was, I was, I was from scratch. I was a clean slate, you know, and Mm -hmm. I wasn't realizing, I think in the ED that I actually had a repertoire of skills that had navigated complex you know, situations before, and then realizing like, I need to leverage those skills. Like I, I can anticipate something 
being not going the way I want it to now because I can see it, you know, so use it as foresight, not just hindsight, you know? Um, yeah. So, I mean, obviously the organization with, with that amount of turnover, the organization had some problems. Yeah. And so getting a supervisor was a piece of fixing that. What else did you learn or, or what else did you, what other challenges did you have to overcome to kind of turn that around? Yeah. So I actually ended up, you know, I, I, this is a horrible, I always feel bad saying this because of who I am as a human, but I had to learn how to fire people. Um, mm. And so I started, one of the things I did is I just started creating accountability and I, I just focused in on things that were really important in a 24 seven operation. Um, and that was the first thing I did was attendance. You got to show up on time and you got, well, you got to show up. <laughs> You got to show up on time. That's important. And, um, and no, so I really just built some intense structure or rigor around the attendance and tardiness and those sorts of things. And, you know, over the course of the next, you know, from that, let's say one year in over the course of the next five plus years, you know, early on in that five years, I think, you know, I terminated a lot of people for calling out of work for being late all of the time and other various behaviors that we established simply, you know, weren't going to be tolerated. And, um, you know, that was, that was really hard work. I always, t- I always say like, you, you, you know, if you, if you haven't fired anyone before, you never feel good about it. I can do it now. I am comfortable doing it. I know how to do it. I, I, I'm, I don't want to say I'm a pro at it, but I have never, ever in my career terminated somebody and not felt bad about it. And I think that talking about that amongst other leaders and folks that have gone through it is really important, but I, I learned how to manage terminations there. And that was a huge part because once you start doing that and holding people accountable, the behavior modifies and shifts and you start having the opportunity to hire new people that see similarly the way that you do. And, you know, you can start to change an entire culture that way. Um, and I think that was essentially what happened. Now, I mean, we got to go back to your earlier comment with, in that class with, with Alan, right? It was Alan, <laughs> yeah. hey, is your, you're the problem, right? Not, not yeah. the people that need to get off the bus, but in, yet at, there is some truth there. Like, Sometimes well, people do need to get off the bus, right? Yeah. And, and, and interestingly, Alan was always a part of this and uh, these conversations because I leaned on him heavily during this. And, and, you know, I think that was a shift in there as he was like, Jason, you're doing all the right things now. Like you are, you are being fair, right? And I think fairness is, and that's a hallmark for me. It's like, is this fair? Is my decision to terminate? Is my decision to counsel? Is my decision to hire? Is this fair? Am I doing the right thing? And, you know, that, yes. And to that point, I think it's, you know, and to what Alan was trying to teach me was make sure you're doing all the right things. Once you're doing that and you've built the structure and the support and the understanding and the relationships with people, that when you get to the point where they need to go, you now know you've done everything you could. And that that helps you with the anxiety that you get from having to terminate somebody, you know, and, and take their livelihood away. And, and that's that's what it is, you know, and it's an intense experience. Yeah. So yeah, it was uh, Alan, Alan was there all along, you know, uh, uh, and he would, you know, the other thing, Alan, by the way, on the terminations, I will share that I learned too, is like, never go on the witch hunt. So when you have somebody who does something wrong, right, it's like, and you try to target them to get them out. He was always like, don't do, do not go on a witch hunt, like equally applied to all come up with, you know, your rules apply to everyone. Don't, don't do things just to get one person or that, you know, and there's some HR legality issues there, but there's also like some human stuff there. Like don't, keep yourself in control, you know, don't target an employee because you know, they're bad and try to get them out. Make sure you're universally applying it. That's a good lesson. That's a good lesson. Yeah. Yeah, It's important. And, and for protecting yourself from all that HR stuff. hundred percent. Yeah. It's an easy mistake to make when somebody is frustrating you and yeah. Um, Well, so, so while you were in this role, 
the bombing of the Boston Marathon happened in yeah. 2013. And I, I, we've never talked about this, but I yeah. understand you were involved in the response. I was. Yeah, no, it was, uh, it was a, it was a, it was a crazy day for many reasons. And uh, I was, sorry, again, a random, I was actually not in the hospital when the bombs went off. I was actually at home and uh, I saw that the bombs, I saw the, you know, the news come up and I was like, I have to go to work. And the funniest thing was, is I was so disheveled. Um, this is, I don't know if this is podcast worthy, but people appreciate <laughs> this. I was so disheveled. So I was trying to get myself out of marathon, like outside in shorts and a t-shirt into like work clothes, you know, and I couldn't, I couldn't find my pants. So I was like running around the house in my underwear, right? Like, I'm like, I need pants saying I need pants. Cause I like, couldn't even focus. Cause I was trying to get myself in the car. And, um, you know, so it was like kind of one of those, that's what I remember is running around the house going, I need pants, you know, but no, I remember I went in. And uh, I got there pretty quickly because I lived pretty close to the hospital at the time. And uh, I remember getting there and uh, my, my image uh, was of a guy named Patrick Dillingham, who actually uh, works with me at PM Pediatrics now, but worked for me in the ED at the time. He was standing on a chair outside of the trauma rooms and they were doing like kind of a huddle. And that's my first kind of like image. That's my first memory of, of going in on the marathon bombing. And it was just complete chaos in there. And um, but, you know, I, I, the one thing I learned, the lesson I learned from that was an event like that, the power that it draws you together on in sharing an experience. And it doesn't have to be a catastrophic traumatic experience, such as the marathon bombing. Just when you come together like that in an experience, whether it be a project or otherwise, like the bonding that happens was, was amazing. And, you know, as a result of it, I think we really learned the strength of the team. It goes back to that again. And, you know, in the days following the support that we showed to one another was just, it was so tremendous. And so, so amazing to like, kind of go through that experience together. And again, bonded us, you know, we still, there's a lot of communication that still goes on from the, the folks that were there that day. And I, I saw a lot of amazing and horrific things and I'm an administrator, so I'm not, you know, I, I wasn't on the, I wasn't in the blood and I wasn't in, but Everybody that was there that day went through the same experience, whether you were laying hands or not. And, uh, and it's something that I think will, well, none of us will ever forget, but again, I'm, I'm an optimist. So I am grateful for that experience and the opportunity that we had to work together as a team and to build those relationships even stronger than what they already were. And I'm grateful that that event led to that, you know, and uh, I wish it never had happened, but I've got to have, find some gratitude in it. So you spent 13 years at Boston Children's. What do you, and, and, you know, made a really remarkable progress getting to be a director at, you know, at 29, you decide to leave in 2016 to join your current organization, PM Pediatrics, just reflecting back on your Boston children's time. What do you, what do you think made you successful? Yeah. It, you know, I actually been asked this question a lot when I was in the hospital. So folks would come to me and be like, how'd you do it? <laughs> you know? And because Navigating large complex organizations, you know, is, is not simple. And I, I give the same usual half joking response to start. And that is, oh, I just got lucky. And uh, now let me define that. I had good timing. So roles kind of opened when I was ready to move. I had a good support system. I had a good, you know, that were encouraging my development and advancement. I found out about the emergency department job because our director of nursing, a woman named Cheryl Gothing, in cardiology came into my office one day and said, Dupuy, I got the job for you, you know, and that was literally how I found out. And she worked with me. She was a, you know, one of my peers in the, in the leadership team in cardiology. And she said, I want you to, you need to go for this job. I think you were built for it. And, um, you know, so I, I, I think some of it is timing that I just had good timing, but 
that's an easy cop-out answer, right? Because it doesn't help anyone Sure, yeah. <laughs> to, to, yeah. to bank on timing. But what happened and what was most important and what I realized is that it was the relationship building. So I made it a point to build as many relationships in as many different departments as possible so that I could do my job well. And I always joke at Boston Children's, you know, you've made it when you can get a wall painted the same day that you need it painted. And now it doesn't make sense to a lot of people, but the reality is, is that every system is run in relationships and it's hard to get things done in a hospital. And so like even getting a wall painted can take months you know, to have a wall painted because at the time there was only one painter in the, in the whole hospital unless you outsourced it. But if you built a good relationship with the painter, his name was Mike, you know, he'll come paint your wall whenever you want to. Well, if you take that and extrapolate it to, I had a, I was called the people in finance called me an FOF, a friend of finance. So they loved helping me <laughs> because I was trying to help them. And so I was, I led with curiosity. I asked questions if I didn't know. And so by the time I was done there, I basically had built a 13 year long network of people in every department in the entire organization. And I knew so many people that if I didn't know something, I had a plethora of people I could go to. And I think that was the secret. Uh, I think, and I don't even know that I realized it going along. That's why I was sharing the timing and the luck is I don't know that I realized the breadth and the depth of the network that I built there, but it took me, it's intentional and it took me years and I had to keep working on it and building it with new people that would come and that sort of thing. So it's a, it's iterative and it's ongoing. It's not a, I've built it. I'm good now. You know, you got to keep working on it. So I think that was it. I think that was what led to my success is that network of people. Is that something you just do naturally? I think, you know, I do. People have said that I have that, like, that's an inherent, like I'm, I, I have a skill ability to build relationships and rapport with people. But, you know, my, my reflection on that is I had to learn that early on and, and it took a little bit of confidence and comfort to make that outreach to people and to say, Hey, I don't know. You know, I call finance. and be like, I don't understand what this means. You know, I'm having that comfort that you don't know everything or that, you know, when you're in a position or a directorship, right. And like being comfortable saying, I don't know and asking questions when sometimes we feel like we should know, but I think I had to build the skill and the comfort with asking. Um, I don't think that came naturally, but as a building a relationship, I think I have a good ability. And I attribute that by the way, Mark, to my military upbringing, I moved around. So I had to make new friends all the time, right? That was my life was meeting new people, making new friends, new people would move in the neighborhood and we would go and introduce ourselves. And so I think it was some of my childhood was in my, my military, having a dad in the army was like a big part of my ability to build relationships. So again, in 2016, you decided to leave uh, Boston Children's to join PM Pediatrics. What drove that decision? Yeah, you were, so, you were super successful there. Things were going really well. You, you had know, all these connections. Yeah, it was um, it was pretty wild actually. I, I after that first year in the ED, I wasn't even looking anymore. Like I didn't look for jobs. I was like, this is amazing. This is kind of going. You know, full disclosure, and I'm comfortable sharing this. You know, I, I think as I uh, around year, you know, 12, <laughs> we'll call it at Boston Children's, I started realizing some of the strategic kind of directions and uh, priorities and stuff of the organization were, weren't necessarily aligning with who I was and who I wanted to be. And, you know, I won't go into the intricacies of that, but that, you know, that's more of like, I was just kind of in that space of, I think my time might be running out here. I was getting a little, you know, my, my dad always said to me, if you don't love what you're doing, go do something else. You owe it not just to yourself, but to everyone around you. And, and that, you know, my dad was big into core values. I'm a big core values guy. And he always did passion, dedication, and integrity. Those were his three, right? Passion, love what you do, dedication, be there and integrity, do the right thing. And so that's always kind of stuck with me. And what I felt was my passion fading. 
And, uh, you know, here I was 13 years in, I had all these connections. I, I, I had a future there uh, that I could have figured out and a pathway forward. And I think I just realized like, hey, I'm not as passionate about this anymore. And if I'm not as passionate, then my team is going to suffer because they're not going to get my passion. They're not going to get my dedication. They're not, you know, it's, and so I started realizing, I think it's time for me to figure this out. Interestingly, I'll transition this uh, right about that time. I was chatting with one of the docs in the emergency department who was an urgent care physician named Tony Hogenkamp. And uh, I was finishing up my master's and we were talking about urgent care. And my capstone project for my master's in healthcare administration was a business plan for opening a pediatric urgent care in Massachusetts. And I had landed on that because I was like, there's a gap in care here. And we've got all these kids showing up in EDs that could be taken care of in an urgent care. And it's kind of a cool model. And I had done some recon on some urgent cares in the area. No one was doing pediatrics. And I was like, geez, there's a whole market here that no one's touching. Um, I got to say, like, like, as a father of three kids, you know, I remember, I would have so much rather had that, you know, available, you know, I mean, like my, remember my my first baby we had, she got like a fever of like, I don't know, 104 or something like that. And, and we were in the military far from home, nobody to reach out to nobody to be like, Hey, calm down. It's just, you know, give her Motrin, calm down, you know, like, um, and so we panicked and we went to the ED like five hours later. (laughs) Yeah, no. Right. And that's the, and you know, we'll get into that, but like, that's the business model, right? right. It's like, gosh, it's gotta be a better way to do this, you know? Right. And right. so sharing that story with Tony and Tony said to me, you got to meet Jeff and Steve. This is their story. And Jeff, Jeff Shore and Steve Katz are the two founders of PM Pediatrics. And, um, you know, it was interesting. And so her and I talked and then ended up having, uh, they happened to be in town doing some, I don't remember what they were doing. And I had dinner with them and we just, you know, it was just a dinner conversation. And at the end of the dinner, Jeff said to me, he's like, I want you to come work with us, but I want you to figure out what you want to do. And he's like, I'm going to leave that to you. And, uh, you know, I was like, uh, like that's kind of a wild <laughs> when you think about you don't it, get an offer like that all the time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I really didn't know what to do with it, you know? So, and we can talk more about that, but that was how they came on my radar was like, yeah. it just happened to line up with the capstone. And I had written a business plan to open a pediatric urgent care in that's Massachusetts. Amazing. And that's and, what they uh, were doing. <laughs> and that's, that's what they had already done. Like they had already established, oh, okay. you know, at okay. that point. And, so it was just, they were just in New York and New Jersey. So they were far away. So I, I, uh-huh. I didn't even know about them when I was doing the project, you know, it wasn't even on my radar. So I just happened to find out about them. Had they already opened a facility yeah. in yeah, Mass so, at that point? No, not Massachusetts. And so okay. interestingly, myself and Tony Hogenkamp, the provider from the ED. So Tony had actually worked for them when they first opened in 2005 in Syosset, New York, which is on Long Island. And so that was how she knew them. And then she had moved up to Boston and got the job at Boston Children's Hospital. And so, you know, she ended up coming over to PM Pediatrics as well. And so her and I, and, uh, and obviously the PM team ultimately ended up opening the first Massachusetts location together. So we kind of worked on that together. Yeah. Wow. All right. So, so you've got this offer what makes you pull the trigger? What'd you finally, what'd you tell them you wanted to do? And, and <laughs> that was, no, I, I always laugh. Cause right. That was the wild part is that I'm sitting there and I'm like, I can write anything I want. Like I don't write. And like, I didn't know what to do with that. And so I actually, again, introspection and kind of went in the tank and I started thinking about like, what are the parts of my job and the emergency department that I really enjoy. And one of the things that I really enjoyed that everyone thought I was crazy for was when patients, families, that sort of thing, when people were upset, I enjoyed working with them. I enjoyed trying to understand why they were upset. I worked with the patient relations department at Boston Children's quite a bit on issues. And one of the things that would, that they would always tell me is like, Jason, you really have a knack 
for working with upset families and having, having them feel heard and understood. And so as I was thinking about, you know, PM and it's like, what is it that I ultimately want to do? I was like, you know, I really want to focus on experience, patient family experience. I think it's important uh, at the time, you know, it was already a field that was growing. So this was because this was in, you know, 2016, it was already or 2015. I can't one of those 2016. It was already there. It wasn't new, but I was like, I'm really interested in kind of this space. And so that was my proposal to them. As I said, you know, I'm really interested. I'd be really interested in discussing something in the realm of patient family experience. And Jeff's response was, oh my gosh, this was exactly like, this is exactly what we need, you know? And then he says, write the job description, right? And then I'm like, oh boy, now I don't. So I had to write my own job description, which was also, you don't get an opportunity to do that. And so, and I take that very seriously because I'm like, I am shaping my future, (laughs) right off of this document that I'm creating. So cool. yeah, no, it was a pretty wild experience to be honest with you. All right. So before we dive into kind of what you do at PM Peds or PM Pediatrics, let's talk a little bit about that organization. So you mentioned they were founded in 2005 in New York. Founders were Dr. Jeff Shore and Stephen Katz. Talk a little bit about them. What was their vision back yeah. in 2005? No, their story's pretty cool, man. They So they actually randomly were roommates in undergrad at uh, Amherst in Massachusetts. So they both oh, went to Amherst okay. and they were, they ended up randomly assigned as roommates. And, uh, you know, Jeff was on the pre-med going to med school track and Steve was on the business and and he's an economist. So he, like, they were, you know, in different worlds, but became best friends in, in college. And then they kind of went their separate ways in life. And, and, you know, Jeff was, uh, Jeff was at Columbia and then went down to children's national down in Washington, DC. And, you know, Steve worked for a couple of different consulting firms to include Bain. And, you know, they both ended up landing in Port Washington, New York, which is a town on Long Island. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. And so when Steve's kids would get sick, he would call Jeff and say like, Hey, cause Jeff was an ED physician. He's an emergency department physician. He called Jeff. Oh, okay. and like, Not a pediatrician. He's a pediatrician. Yeah. He's a pediatric oh, okay. emergency medicine. Doctor. Okay. Okay. Great. And um, yeah, so he would, Steve would call Jeff and be like, Hey, my, you know, my son's, you know, whatever. And then they, they literally started talking. They were like, I think there's a business model here. Like you're calling me because you don't want to go to the ED and it's nine at night and your primary care doctor's closed. So they literally started developing a business plan. And that was how kind of PM pediatrics was born you know, was through Steve calling Jeff for help. And then them realizing like, there might be a business here instead of doing this, you know, for friends, why don't we try and do it to the community, do it for the community. So they, they ultimately raised money amongst family and friends, you know, kind of that first entrepreneurial and, and, and loans and stuff and, and opened their first site in 2005. Yeah. So it's and that was down in, and that was down in New York. Yep. Long Island. Syosset, Long Island. New York. On Long okay. Island. Yeah. Was, yeah. Well, is, was there a reason for that? Were they from there or? Was- yeah, it was kind of, well, they did a lot of, um, you know, population, like looking at population data, how okay. many people live there. We call it the stroller count, right? What's your stroller, stroller count? How, yeah, how many, yeah. So strollers how many are babies patients. and strollers? Yeah, okay. you want babies because yeah. they grow okay. up and they keep coming back, right? And uh, you don't want the 18 year olds, you want the, you want the right. infants, you know, and they, because they'll keep coming and. And some of it too was like, uh, that site still exists. It, it's still open. They're still in the original site. We still have our location there. And it's, it's very different from all of our others. It's, it's not very visible from the street. So it's also a sign of like, they didn't have the money to like open this perfect, you know, so they had to settle for what they could, could kind of do. And, but they built an entire business off that one, you know, so the, the model clearly works, you know, and worked. Um, but yeah, so that was kind of how they did it in the beginning was population and just trying to find some place with space that, that kind of suited what they were doing. And it started by the way, with Jeff as the doctor and Steve as the administrative front desk person, just the two, 
Just the two of them running yeah, this. Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. They would do, they did all the billing. They did all the, it was just the two of them working, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. it's kind of wild to think about, you know, and, uh, but yeah, then they, they bootstrapped it. I mean, they really did. Yeah. So just frame this real quick. What is urgent care? Like we got to kind of yeah. get that. I think I always say the easiest way to explain it is, um, you know, we our our capability is pretty close to an emergency department, but not an emergency department. And so it's really sits in that space between primary care and emergency care. It's just uh, it's it's in the middle. Um, what we've learned over time, though, is like you can increase that capability or capacity up to a point before it gets really complicated in the equipment or the ability that we would need in order to provide that higher level of care. But we really sit at like the low acuity stuff or the, you know, the, 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 the low acuity that goes into an emergency department. It's essentially how do we siphon that volume off of that system that is taxed and get it taken care of more quickly, right, more conveniently, and most importantly, most, most cost efficiently, right? An, an ED bill for an ear infection, you know, let's say a thousand bucks, you know, an urgent care bill for an ear infection is hundred to 200 bucks, you know? And so it's like, that is probably the easiest way to explain is it kind of sits in there when your primary care is closed and you don't want to go to the emergency department. That's why we're there. Yeah. And I noticed you had the hours you guys uh, run is like 12 to nine, 12 to 10, something like that. So it starts later in the day, right? Yes. And that's on, you know, there's some, some, some very strong, it's very intentional that we do that. I can explain a little bit about it because I do think it's important to the urgent care concept. So, you know, when we first opened, we were four to midnight. So that was like, that was the window. They were, they operated from 4 PM until midnight. And what they found was that people were showing up or trying to get care earlier than four. And when you look at like primary care physicians or primary care offices, they often run out of slots, urgent, urgent visit slots by a certain time in the day. And so the next thing they did is they walked it from 4 PM down to 2 PM. And then they walked it from 2 PM down to noon because families were saying, I can't get in with my pediatrician and I don't want to go to the emergency department. So it was really built on access to care. And if you're unable to see your pediatrician and you, you, we don't, you know, you don't want to send an ear pain into the emergency department. That was, we were trying to kind of push ourselves into that niche to, to pick up that slack. And so, yeah, the hours are very intentional. We do, some of our offices go noon to midnight, some go noon to 10, some go 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. So there's kind of a, a, a mishmash out there. And some of them go okay. 10 a.m. until midnight uh, on Sundays is normally the day we do that. So there's, there's varying hours and that has to do with access and how we want to like volume and where the volume comes and what time and stuff. There's some strategic components to that. So first facility in 2005, it's what, 17 years later, how many facilities do they have now? We're at, we're at 74. Wow. Um, yeah, it's pretty wild. And I was, it's hard to even keep track now. It could be 75, but I'm pretty sure it's 74 and we're in 16 States. Wow. So, uh, we do, we, uh, we are, we're, we've crossed the country. So we're in California. We have a site in Alaska actually. And, uh, yeah, so we've got the entire Eastern seaboard. It feels like from North Carolina, all the way up to Massachusetts, we've got in every state to include Delaware, um, we're out in Tennessee, down in Florida, also in Illinois. Uh, so yeah, we've been, uh, and we've got multiple sites out in California now, uh, four or five, I think in the LA area. So, and we, you know, we really did that largely from 2005 until 2015, the growth was really slow. When I came on in 2016, we only had 15 sites and we were only in, we had one site in Maryland and then everything else was in New York and New Jersey. And so in the last, I've been here almost six years in the last six years, essentially we've gone from 15 to 75. So our growth has really happened in the last five years. What's driving that growth? 
a bunch of different things. I mean, I think some of it is increasing access to care and like we're, we're trying to reach even on Long Island, you know, we've opened not recently in the last few years, though, we've opened a couple additional sites, like just increasing access to us. And, 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 you know, with the ultimate goal of like, we want to keep kids out of the emergency department and we want them to have access to care. Um, and so I think that's a big part of it. And then there's obviously, you know, just the opportunity to expand and to, to be a larger company, a larger healthcare company. And, you know, so that's where, you know, California, and it may seem random when I list the States, but going back to important relationship note, you know, when you work in emergency medicine for a while, the connections are actually pretty strong. And so a lot of people that I work with at PM in New York know many of the emergency physicians in Massachusetts because they may have trained together. And so that network is pretty tight. So a lot of the places that we open are due to relationships that we have with emergency medicine physicians and other nurses and that sort of thing in those areas. So you can actually kind of tie it together through relationships. Yep. So our vice president of clinical operations, a guy named Josh Sherman out in California, he actually used to work for PM Pediatrics before he went to Children's Hospital LA. He eventually left Children's Hospital LA to come work with us as our vice president of clinical ops. So there's a lot of connections in there. So the growth is in part driven by the availability of providers. Yes. Is that kind of what I'm hearing. Okay. Yeah, Interesting. Yeah. So yeah, stro- stroller, stroller count overlaid with, with yeah. uh, providers that happen to be in kind of your network of, of yeah. known that's wow, really interesting. Yeah. And we do have, you know, we have a lot of analytical tools that kind of can help us understand a new location, for example, if it based on our demographic of our current patient population, if they kind of fit that demographic, you know, if that's the, and you know, there's not, there's no huge secrets here. It's kind of like, we do really well in communities where both parents are working, you know, that's uh that's kind of come up time and time again. And that's because they need the quick, the easy, the, the access to care because they may need to get back to work or they don't want their kid out of school or daycare. And, you know, because they don't have the, so we really do well in, you know, middle income to working parent communities. And um, so, you know, there are some like things that we've been able to figure out over time that help us pick sites and locations and stuff. But yes, it's also driven by, we need providers, we need staff to do it. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's an important resource constraint, right? I mean, yes, big time. Big yeah. Time. Um, so one of the things I was thinking about uh, as I was preparing to talk with you um, is I remember when the urgent care was first coming out, when some of the um, you know, or the concept of these, these standalone urgent cares or, or system or urgent care systems, but also like the, you know, CVS was launching its, its nurse, uh, nurse yeah. practitioner services. And you just kind of had these, you know, dock in a box kind of things where you, there was a fair amount of pushback from the primary care community, from pediatrics, yeah. from family medicine. They did not want no, they, they did not like this. They saw this as comp. I think they saw it as competition. 100%. Talk about that. What, how, yeah. what no, was this that was, like then? And how's it evolved? Yeah, this was definitely one of those early conversations when I was chatting with Jeff and Steve about coming over was trying to understand that because I, I didn't want to enter. I didn't want to leave Boston Children's and go into someplace like urgent care where I thought we could innovate and improve the healthcare delivery system through pediatric urgent care. It's like, I really believed in that, but I also wanted to, under, it's like, well, I also want to create a thousand problems for the system. And I think that that became a really important thing, but here's some interesting stuff. And, and I've had to defend our honor, if you will, at conferences and those <laughs> sorts of things, because, and I welcome, I now invite it. I usually start by saying, I'm sure there's a lot of you in the room that work at hospitals uh, or, or have a primary care office that think, you know, urgent care is, you know, is hurting the system. If you'd like to discuss it, let's do it because I can explain kind of our model. Um, so I try to invite it now instead of having somebody raise their hand at the end and attack, but um, I'll say it this way. 
So our hours are intentional to not compete with primary care offices. So our idea and our model is like filling in the gap when they can't see their patients, but they need care. Now that's not a knock on them. Their capacity is their capacity, right? They, they have 20 visits a day. They fill 20, that 21st patient is going to end up in the ED. When you think about value-based care or value-based contracts, you think about other payer agreements that you have, or if you're on capitation or something like that, your patient ending up in the ED is the last thing that you want, you know, for, for that case. And so I think there is, you know, part of it for us was how do we provide that care and fit into the model and not necessarily try to disrupt it. I won't name other urgent cares, but if you look at hours of a lot of urgent cares, they're 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Now, that is direct competition because if you're opening at 8 a.m., that person may not even try to go to their primary care. That's a very different approach. So our hours are very intentional to try to avoid taking patients. I mentioned earlier, we do 10 a.m. to midnight on Sundays. That is because most primary care offices do not offer Sunday hours at all. So we are trying to keep people out of the emergency department, right? That's our goal. So it's like, if we're not there at 10 a.m. and they need to have an ear infection or they need to be seen and they go to the ED, we see that almost as a failure, like in the system is that we're putting that it's, it's a waste of cost and resource. Of, and uh, so, you know, I think that's one of the things that I like to share is our hours are intentional. And they're, they're really not intended to take volume for primary care physicians. The other thing we do is we're very committed to making sure that we communicate with every primary care physician when we see their patients. So we fax notes every night at 2 a.m. And everybody, we, you know, PCPs in the system, we load all their information and we send a note over that has the whole clinical thing, why they were there, what our diagnosis was, et cetera, kind of the clinical summary. Um, so we're very committed to doing that. And, uh, you know, we've had a lot of success and a lot of appreciation that comes for that. The other big one is that we don't do well visits. We don't do immunizations. We don't do school physicals. Uh, we don't do any of that stuff. That's the medical home. That's the primary care physician's job. If we start doing that. Now we're just sniping their business. And, you know, we don't want to. So we've never entered into that game. You know, we don't want to play that game. A lot of other urgent cares actually do offer school physicals or return to work evaluations or immunizations, you know, et cetera. And uh, no, we've intentionally stayed away from that. But the one exception being we did offer COVID vaccinations to some extent in some of our locations when we had access to vaccine. And that was simply trying to solve a public health crisis. That was not, right. there was no driver in that. That was like, let's keep them out of the, in fact, most of the primary care offices, at least in uh, our, our centers, like uh, our business centers, like New York and New Jersey, weren't even open or seeing patients at times. And so we were committed to kind of staying open and being there. And so, you know, I guess it's a, it was a multitude of things, but those are a few examples, I think, of how we're, we're different in our approach and try to make sure that we don't infringe too much on taking care of their patients when it's something they themselves could do, you know? I mean, it seems like the acceptance of urgent care. I mean, it's been around long enough now that I think it's being integrated. It's being, it's less controversial. Yeah. I think. Well, uh, well, you know what happens, Mark? That's kind of funny, especially on long Island. Cause we've been here the longest, you know, we've been here for 16, 17 years now is sometimes we find out that primary care physicians in the community, actually, when they close to like go on vacation in the summer, when you call their office, it says go to PM pediatrics or call them if you need assistance. And we don't even know that they do that, right? We find out because <laughs> a family calls and says, oh, my primary care said to call here, you know? And we were like, what? You know, so I think some of them have actually leaned into it or started to appreciate. And that comes from years, that's relationship building and them understanding, hey, we're not trying to take your patients, but when they sprain their ankle at a baseball game at 8 p.m., we're keeping them out of the ED. You know, it's like, that's kind of our, our model. Um, so no, we've seen that sort of, you know, embracing of our of our ideas and, and, and our approach to care, you know, which has been cool. Um, you, in addition to offering face-to-face, -face, you also offer virtual care. Um, uh, when did this start? Was this a, 
was this an evolution, a response to COVID, or was this something you were already working uh, uh, before COVID happened? Yes and yes. Uh, we were we were kind of splashing into this idea that we wanted to, you know, be kind of on, more on the leading edge of virtual care um, in the urgent care setting. Uh, we had already kind of uh, we actually partnered with Teladoc, which I feel like everybody knows Teladoc now because they became famous during the pandemic. But we we were working with them prior to and trying to figure out, and we kind of had a uh, it was like kind of a white label service through them where we were able to put our logos and stuff on it. We call it PM Pediatrics Anywhere. Um, so we were already seeing some virtual visits prior to the pandemic, prior to us even knowing COVID-19 was a, was a, was a thing, you know. And um, so we just, again, good timing, I guess, is then when the pandemic hit and it started to shift, we were very well prepared to kind of shift our care model as best we could into virtual care. And so we kind of already had the platform, people were already kind of using it. And then uh, we just quickly kind of pivoted right into it. Uh, so it was as a result of COVID, I mean, certainly became a primary utilization approach. Uh, we did COVID testing uh, as part of our model. And so we would screen them on our virtual platform and then have them just come in to get swabbed instead of having them come in and be seen because that was just easier for them and uh, easier for us in many ways too, to not have a bunch of people in your office all of a sudden. Um, so yeah, no, it was, it ended up, COVID ended up catapulting it, but it was already there. You know, we were already kind of dabbling. How is that? How does that link up to kind of the original business of urgent care? The well, the, so the, the, having telehealth, telemedicine. Pre- yeah. telemedicine. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, again, it's like you know, we always for years we've been saying right place, right, right care in the right place at the right time. Right. And when you think about the cost in the system, you know, the overhead cost from a business perspective is much less to do a virtual visit than to have them come in person. And even in urgent care, you end up seeing a lot of things that don't necessarily need to be seen in person uh, to create some understanding, you know, things like uh, pink eye or uh, a rash, you know, some sort of a, a non-clinical. So if I start throwing terms, I always sound like an idiot, but, you know, um, so I, use the, I always use the easy ones. Right. Um, but I think it was, you know, what we learned really quickly was like, wasn't this a great way to engage a population of people and keep them from even coming in necessarily for an unnecessary urgent care visit? It saves money in the system and cost. Now, from a business perspective to offset that, you know, and uh, I think we, we may have chatted about this a little bit earlier, Mark, um, before we were recording, is that we also have new, the state of New York is enormous, but our physical plant footprint is Long Island and, um, and Brooklyn and the Bronx. Uh, yeah, Brooklyn and the Bronx. We don't go to Manhattan, or, or uh, and we have Queens. We have Queens as well. We don't do Manhattan, or, and we do have a we do have a site on Staten Island. So we just don't have anything in in uh, Manhattan proper. But you know, for us, it's like, but we have licenses in New York, so we we actually have the opportunity to see people all over New York, and so it actually expands from a business perspective our ability or capability to take care of more people in the state of New York through virtual care. The challenge there, of course, is then well, if they need to then be seen in person, then what? because we can't necessarily send them into one of our offices because they're, you know, so we end up having to figure out different pathways and, and how do we guide them. Uh, but yeah, so it's, it's really become a part of our model and it aligns with who we are of, you know, we wanted, we want to create, you know, the right care in the right place. And, and we're not trying to drive up costs in the system by just telling everybody to come in person, you know, and, and so it, it allows us to actually provide better care through that modality when it's appropriate. Uh, That's just- very strict, by the way, on our quality stuff. Like we don't do antibiotics. We have very, you know, it's like the, the we're very aware of kind of not contributing, you know, and, uh, to the antibiotics issue and antibiotic stewardship is really important for us. So we don't, you know, we're very, very low on ever giving antibiotics over time. So in addition to telemedicine 
for medical care, you also have, or, or PM Pediatrics has branched out into uh, behavioral health. And my understanding is right now, this is all uh, telehealth based. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. So we, yeah, so we we're currently, we're only offering it via telehealth and that kind of just dovetailed with the system that we had already built. And, and we kind of started building this at a time where it was very unclear what the future landscape of healthcare was really going to look like, like uh, how much, how, what percentage of people were going to want to just completely stay virtual, for example. And I just saw an article, I think it was something like 37% now it's like dropped down to 37% and like, you know, so we're, and I think everything I'm reading saying it's going to stay somewhere around there. But yeah, in the beginning, it was very intentional just based on the pandemic was like, Hey, there's a behavioral health crisis. It's going to get worse, you know, from the pandemic and everyone kind of being isolated and stuff. So how do we get ahead of it? So we targeted virtual out of eats. I mean, instead of having to try to build physical footprint. Okay. How does this, how does behavioral health fit into the urgent care model that you had built? Like that's not, is it, is it urgent care behavioral health or is it, or is it more? It's standard? general. No, it's a good, okay. it's a great question. It's kind of general. You know, one of the things strategically as an organization that, that we've been focusing on is, you know, really trying to take advantage not in a negative way, but of what we've already built by having physical urgent care plan and what else or what other services can we also provide with the idea of like becoming an actual healthcare company, not an urgent care company. And so we actually just went through this whole rebranding where it's like, we're really, we're not PM pediatrics urgent care anymore. We're PM pediatrics health. And we're trying to figure out these other modalities and specialties and things that we could also provide benefit for when you have, you know, a, for us, this huge system of patients and families that have known us for years, you know, as an urgent care company, but are comfortable and trust us. And can we start building other things to support them in the community even more than we already are, you know? Now, anyone listening to this, right? There's also business underneath this. I mean, there's, you know, it's, it, it, so, you know, I was, you know, call spade spade. It's like, there's, we can provide a service to a community that is very much needed and, and we can generate revenue from that service. Uh, but again, it's like, if we can provide it in a way that keeps them in our system. You know, we now provide urgent care and we can provide behavioral health and we want to keep expanding on that service offering so that we can kind of capture, you know, and give them, you know, access to different types of care with us. So what kind of behavioral health care is being offered through PM Pediatrics? Yeah, so we do, we do, uh, obviously, obviously it's pediatric focused. Um, we didn't mention this earlier, but you know, for us, we do uh, like our urgent care practices or sites we see from zero to 26. So we don't, uh, we do go up through 26 and, you know, there's always been a lot of conversation about why do we pick that threshold? And, you know, it was really where we had to draw a line somewhere, you know, and, um, but, you know, for routine things like strep and stuff, like it's like, it's pretty easy for us to handle those. It's the same thing, whether you're 30 or five, you know, it's a swab of mm -hmm. your throat. So, um, but behavioral health kind of follows that same model you know, of, uh, and, and it's really, it's therapeutic services. We do do some psychopharmacological stuff. So like ADD, ADHD, we can do that sort of thing. And so I think for us too, right now, we're really trying to figure all that out and, you know, what is the breadth and the depth of the services that we offer and, you know, what are the teams and the folks that we're going to need to be able to expand that, you know, even more to what we currently have, but it's, it's, it's kind of like, that's our initial focus and uh, trying to grow that out and understand what the need actually is. I wanted to talk a little bit, you, you have, so one of the things that's different about behavioral health based on your website is you don't take insurance. And this is an interesting trend. Yeah. Um, I've interviewed a couple of behavioral health leaders, you know, and, and many of them don't take insurance. They'll be like, Hey, I'll give you a 
you know, I'll give you a receipt. You can file for it with yep. your, with your um, health insurance company, but I'm not, I'm not taking that. What's driving that? Yeah. Like, think- why do you guys have it? And why is it becoming so common? I think, I think we might be, I don't know that it's necessarily, or it does, you know, from my understanding, my perspective, I don't know that it's, you know, that we feel like it's the only way to do it. I think it was when we were trying to do this relatively quickly, when we noticed the crisis and that it was just getting worse. And now, by the way, I always like to share that behavioral health crisis did not start in the pandemic. It was going, this has been going for years and right. we all know it. It's been EDs are bogged down with psych patients. I used to deal with this in the emergency department at, Boston Children's, you know, we'd have all the psych patients boarding overnight and stuff. I mean, it was, it was, it's been bad for years. I think when we saw it coming, it was like, Hey, we have this platform, like the telemedicine platform, we should be leveraging it and we should be leveraging it for good. And, and so the process of negotiating and getting those contracts in place is pretty extensive, pretty exhaustive, takes a lot of time. And I think, you know, we're in that process. I mean, we're, we are in the process right now of, of securing contracts and targeting different payers and trying to get that lined up for families. But to start, it was like, let us not delay the start of the program okay. over an insurance contract. You know, let's okay. let's offer these services and and um, and see how it goes. You know, and and so we are in the process of trying to contract. I don't know that we'll ever contract with everyone, but you know, I think that will be a part of the process. And and additionally, we are looking at providing in-person behavioral health services. Obviously, that's a whole new area for us where it's we've got to build the space for that. And that's not the same as urgent care space, right? We're very right. good at building urgent care space, you know, it's a, but our behavioral health space, you know, physical plant space is, you know, it's a new skill that we're trying to figure out too. So we are exploring that and, and working on that as well. Really interesting. Well, let's um, transition to talk a, a little about you. Yeah. And your actually, so I mentioned, so your role, chief experience officer, you wrote that, you wrote that description yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, after that dinner. So what did you decide to write on the paper when you handed yeah. it off to? <laughs> well, it's kind of wild because six years, I always, uh, I always say years at PM are like dog years, right? One year okay. is seven years, right? Okay. And, okay. Uh, and that's just because of that, that growth. When you go through yeah. that extreme growth, it's like, it's just, everything feels very rapid, like almost like you're on a fast forward, you know? And so when I first started, it was really, you know, I, I remember the first thing I did six years ago was I took all of the survey data and I went through and I was like, well, let me just figure out what people like and don't like about PM. That was literally how I started, you know, was let me look at the data. Let me understand what's going on. What do people love? What do people not love? And try to get some arms around that and then figure out what's our path forward from there. And that was wild. I had never gone into experience survey data the way I'd never analyzed data like that. And, you know, you have the quantitative stuff, but the qualitative stuff's where the meat is, the comments that people make and trying to understand. And so I had to build a system to code and classify them by sentiment. You know, what are they actually complaining about? Wait time, the provider, you know, some simplicity in the, in the labeling. And, um, and then sometimes you have two or three different complaints in one comment. And so trying to, under, like, at what point do you draw the line and say, I'm not going to list seven sentiments on this one. They get two. I usually go with two and just did a lot of sentiment analytics and data analytics to understand like, Hey, why is this site underperforming? Why is this site overperforming? If we could use that term, which for us is just performing. Right. So really doing all of that. And I was alone. It was just me. And at the time, 15 sites. And so I traveled a lot. I went to all of the sites, visited them, observed the process, the flow, like how they were interacting, what worked, what didn't work. And so I had a great opportunity in the first little while to really just understand the business and get underneath the data and start capturing and then sharing it. So I started doing a lot of facilitation, teaching, that sort of thing. And then over the last six years, it's really evolved. You know, we've gotten really, really big, really large, really complex. And so a big, I have three 
I call them orgs underneath me. So I have patient experience as one org. I also have patient access, which kind of has a front end revenue cycle training type of role in it. And then uh, we also have a newish role that we're using called a regional administrative manager that kind of runs the front desk operations for different regions and subregions, And we built those based on gross revenue. So when you kind of clip a certain gross revenue, we add a regional administrative manager to protect that revenue. That's kind of the, the simplified explanation of that. Um, so I started just doing patient family experience and it's kind of expanded into these other three areas. Experience, when you list it, by the way, on paper is very confusing. Like no one really knows what it means. So it's hard to actually explain it. Cause like, what do you actually do? You know? And that's, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and over time, you know, it's really just trying to find opportunities, which I learned this in the ED to make sure that providers are doing provider stuff, you know, and people are, you know, they aren't doing administrative things that keep them from taking care of the patient, right? That's the simplified, another simplified version. But a big part of my job too, is helping educate them. I do a lot of teaching. Uh, we do a lot of myself and my team, we do a lot of facilitation on, on different topics. Um, we do talks on psychology of waiting, you know, how people process weights. That's one of my favorite talks that I developed, we do a lot in the realm of empathy, active listening, you know, just teaching people almost how to communicate. I've always said this, no offense to HMP, because it's near and dear to my heart, but I was at this point in my career, I'm like, I should have been a psych major. Like psychology was probably, <laughs> you know, I should, if I had a psych degree, because yeah. a lot of what we do is psychology, understanding mm -hmm. humans, how they think and process information in the healthcare setting. And then how do we take that and place it into the care delivery that we have and the system and the process and the structure so that they come out of it feeling like they were heard and valued and taken care of. So it's, it's been a mishmash. Yeah. Yeah. How is it? I mean, so obviously it's changed a lot with the growth that you've had, I imagine. Yeah. Now, who do you collaborate with most to perform your role? Like, you know, who are you reaching out to? And we do, yeah, we do a lot of work with the quality team actually. Okay. And like, um, you know, I, re my reporting structure, I re actually report to the chief medical officer, Dr. Karen Sadow, Karen Sadow. She's, uh, and uh, she's, Oh, and her role as CMO also has oversight of quality, like clinical quality and safety. Uh, and we kind of rolled experience into that. So we kind of work as one team. And, and, you know, often we find intersection points of, you know, when there's low quality, there's not a great experience associated with that, particularly when the family is aware of the low quality or feels there was low quality. And so sometimes it's we disqualify a comment from a family about quality because the care was actually the quality of the care was good. And then it goes into the experience realm. It's like, did we actually explain it well? Right. Did we explain to the family why we didn't do a flu test? And that's a common one. Right. And um, because a flu test doesn't really prove anything, it proves you have flu, but it doesn't change the care plan. And so did we explain that to the family when we didn't do a flu test? Like, hey, I'm not doing a flu test because it's not going to change anything. I think you have mm -hmm. the flu, you know. And, yeah. um, and so there's a lot of that work kind of intersects um, nicely. And so we do So we do a lot of work with our quality folks and quality teams. It's kind of our prior our closest, our closest friends, I'll say. <laughs> Where do you see your contribution in this role having been most significant um, over the last six years? Yeah, um, I honestly, I really think it's getting people, getting people, having the organization kind of take a different kind of angle or, or viewpoint on not just the importance of experience itself, because, you know, we're kind of in a state of transition in the experience world. I don't think this is unique to PM, but, you know, we've been doing a lot of work to remind ourselves that you know, when we think about experience, we have to think about everybody involved. And, and that includes the experience of our employees and how they feel they're being treated. And I do think we're in this state of transition where, you know, the customer always being right is kind of dying in a way. Um, and I don't know that you know, and I think we're all seeing that. I think the pandemic helped push that a little bit forward. I think it was already happening though. 
And so for us, it's really focusing on, you know, we're trying to move ourselves away from saying patient family experience and saying human experience, right? And, and that, uh, and I'll give an example of this to say, we tell our staff to treat our patients with empathy. Well, the best way to get them to understand what empathy is, is when you treat your staff with empathy, right? So treat them with empathy and then they'll, they'll show it in kind, you know, kind of down through. And so really focusing. And so for us, it's like, I really feel like, and, and this has all really been um, coming to a head or, or starting our journey, if you will, in the last six months was kind of shifting us to human experience of really getting people to understand we need to pay attention to this holistically. And um, we need to make sure that if we want our staff to respect our patient and families, that we respect them. And that's one way that we can kind of create it. So I don't know, I guess that's a, a coming um, contribution that I hope would be something that I would list for something like this, but it's something I'm very passionate about. And I think it's taken us and taken me this long to really start realizing that vision and understanding kind of how we need to strike the balance between those two things. Um, and some of that comes from the data. You know, you read data and you're like, geez, I know this person in this family saying that this person is rude. That's weird because I know them, you know? And so like, why would they say that? Uh, and another big part, I guess I'd, I'd like to share, and it, it, it speaks back to what we were talking about earlier for my time at Boston Children's has been relationship building. I, I've spent, you know, the last six years building relationships with as many people at PM across the country now that I possibly can and um, trying to understand their challenges and looking for the themes and kind of stitching it together and then being able to share that back with my senior leader colleagues to like, hey, this is what we're here in boots on the ground, you know, and it goes back to that. How are we getting that information? And then what are we doing with it? So, you know, I think for us, yeah, that would be kind of the two areas. I think it's been my biggest contributions. And one of them is very young and it's what it's providing that human experience idea is pretty young. How have you, so you mentioned your experience with Boston children. So like connecting back, like in that, in that six years, since you've left Boston children's, what do you draw on from that prior experience and where do you, how do you feel you've personally grown as a leader in that time? Yeah. You know, my prior experience, you know, it's funny. I, I, Watching an organization like PM grow from when I came even to from 15 to 75 sites is just, I said to, uh, to Jeff Shore, one of the founders there, and our, our co-CEO with Steve, at one point I said, we have a very unique opportunity to build bureaucracy. And in most organizations like children's, we used to, you know, one of the things we used to say is like, we were dealing with 150 years of Harvard bureaucracy right? It's like, how do you navigate that? You know, and I'm sure, you know, universities are the same thing. It's like, we're dealing with a, yeah, right. It's like you deal with X number of years of bureaucracy that's been layered and layered and layered and layered. And we used to complain about that a lot at children's, you know, it's like the bureaucracy and the way things were done. And, you know, it's, it's a challenge and I'm sure it still is. And it's not a knock. I think that's normal in every organization coming to PM. It was kind of that acknowledgement of, Hey, we're building the bureaucracy of the future. And it's a tremendous opportunity that we have to build it the right way. And I was, I said to him, I said, you know, in 50 years, when none of us are working here anymore, I don't want anyone saying like, we're dealing with all this stupid bureaucracy because we made it. So it's on us then, right? It's, it's like, and so like, let's be accountable to the bureaucracy and the approach. And so I really feel like I kind of brought that understanding of how hard it was to navigate that complex bureaucracy at Boston Children's and remind myself here let us be very cautious about the bureaucracy that we create. And so there are moments where decisions are made or directions are taken. And it's kind of like, it feels, I feel the tingles in my, you know, of, um, you know, the hospital sort of bureaucracy, but that's just the reality of large organizations. And I think that, yeah. you know, I don't, it doesn't make me angry, you know, it's like, but being able to have that. And again, take that hindsight and make it foresight of like, all right, here's some of the challenges we may face is always helpful. 
as the chief experience officer, what keeps you up at night? I mean, and figuratively, if, if, if not literally. <laughs> no, it's a great, uh, it is a great, it is a great question. Um, you know, for me, it's really at this juncture, it's making sure that our care teams really feel supported. I mean, they just went through hell. And, um, you know, we, we weren't a night, we're not an ICU, we're not a, but COVID testing and swabbing and getting overwhelming, our volumes were all over the place. And, you know, I think we've really, you know, that's what kind of gets is like, you know, if we take care of them, they can take care of the patients and making sure we're taking care of them and, you know, recognizing, acknowledging that they're humans too, and that they just went through a pandemic as well. And like, we're not, none of us that work in healthcare were immune to the other things going on with the pandemic outside, you know, it's like, we were intimately involved with it, but we're also humans that have children and lives and kids out of school and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And, you know, so, yeah, I think it's that, I think the other part too, is, you know, really not, it's whitewater right now in the realm of experience and trying to figure out the future. And I think it's, it's happening, but it's like kind of a bit of a whitewater ride of what's the future of surveying look like, you know, and are we over surveying? And, you know, these are, and they sound trivial, I guess, to some, but like, these are the sorts of things that we think about. It's like, how do you actually like, what do you do with this data? Do surveys matter anymore? Is it just the angry people, right? These are the things that we deal with. And, and, and you know, so that's, those are the sorts of things that kind of spin in my mind, you know, it's uh, is, is how do we actually innovate the future. You know, I'm not one to accept the way it's being done or has been done. I want to innovate it and, and try to be out in front of it. Um, and so I spend a lot of time trying to think through that. Speaking of the future, put on your prediction hat. Yeah. Where do you see healthcare? Where do you see the healthcare industry going over the next 10 years? What major changes do you see affecting PM pediatrics? And Yeah. Um, I don't, you know, that's a, it's actually a really tough question because sure. I think there's, yeah. you know, to be honest with you, just because of the amount of white water that I still think we feel from the pandemic and the changes in the system. And, you know, from my perspective, I really feel like the future is some, like the integrated system thing has to be the future, right? This idea, and we see it in, in pockets, even with own where, where I was talking earlier about, we have PM Pediatrics Anywhere, our telemedicine platform and how it feeds into our in-person urgent care platform. And we have behavioral health and you know, I think it's, it's like, how do we build a better spider web? Um, you know, one of the things that we can't ever, like, we're not going to go into orthopedics and become an orthopedic practice, you know? So, but we have patients that come in every day that need orthopedic care. So how do you actually build a better network, you know, that manages the patient while keeping them out of the emergency department? That's the ultimate goal, you know? So my, my five-year-old conducted a maneuver that started with dad, watch this, uh, and ended with a fractured wrist and which, He's my son. All right. But, um, you know, it was, I was just, I loved the dad watch this part and then him breaking his wrist, but you know, that whole experience, I brought him to PM, we got the x-ray and he got all of his care without ever touching an ED. And to me, it was like that, to me, that's the future is we've got to figure out how to keep that stuff, if you will, quotes, air quotes there out of emergency departments and get it into a system that's built to support that when it's not necessary. And I think that's one of the problems in our system is it's not very well structured to, to do it. And I think PM, I think PM pediatrics care, I think the way we're trying to think about it is putting us, us as an organization on a pathway to be able to do that. Like how do we actually connect all of these things? And 
um, you know, we've got some key partnerships. We just struck up a strategic partnership with Boston Children's actually, which was kind of, again, funny and serendipitous, right? Full circle is back. And I'm interacting with some of the people I used to work with, you know, six years ago. And um, which is kind of fun to see kind of where they're at and where we're at. And, and, you know, again, those are strategic partnerships for us to be able to try and build better networks of care, uh, right, right care in the right place in the right time. I think we keep saying that we've been saying that for 20 years, but I don't think we've actually figured it out yet. So I think that still has to be the future. And, and I think urgent care is sitting kind of in the middle of that in, in some ways. Great. Well, I want to end on a couple of questions about leadership. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, could you encapsulate your leadership philosophy? Yeah, I, no, I can. I, I, we talk about this all the time and I always get worked up when um, people, no offense to anyone that's ever said this, but like, like, well, I'm a servant leader or I'm a, you know, mm-hmm. here's what I learned. Here's what I learned in the emergency department is that there's you, no matter how many, if you Google leadership and types of leadership, there's a thousand different types of leadership. What I've learned is good leaders know what to hat to put on, when, when to put it on and know when to take it back off. And, you know, I learned in the ED that my leadership style where, you know, I'm, I'm more of like a leader, a storyteller, nurturing, get to know people. Well, when the, when something goes down, a bomb goes off, there's no, we're not, we're not time for that. We need director sort of like, I need to be able to take control of a situation. And so I've often said that I think the best leaders or the leadership style, the best way to approach it is you got to be a chameleon. You have to be able to be comfortable in different leadership styles and read situations and let your leadership style be dictated by the situation. And that if you just pick one way, then at some point, multiple times, probably you're going to be wrong. And um, you need to give people the leadership that they need. And so it was when I learned that in the ED and have been able to apply that in my job now, it's like, I know when I need to talk to somebody harshly or firmly and be leader as director or when I need to be leader as caretaker or leader as nurturer or leader as, you know, however we want to classify them. So mm. I think it's, you know, I would, I would caution anyone from being too dug in on their leadership style and, and really make sure like know who you are and then figure out what leadership style you're not that great at and start working on it. I was not great as a director, like as a, as a do this. But then once I knew that and started working on it, I was, I would go out in the ED and, you know, something would happen and I would just take control. And I would say, all right, this is what we're going to do. And everyone would just listen, you know, and, and um, so, but it took me a long time to learn that. And so um, I don't know if that really answers your question, Mark, because no, I'm does. not trying to skirt it, man. I, I, I just think it's important that leaders understand, like to hone yourself in onto one style is your base, but you actually need many, many leadership hats to do this well. I mean, I think that, you know, that harkens back to the situational leadership from, I think it was Blanchard back yes. in like the yes. 80s, That's exactly you know, it. which is still like, it's still relevant. I mean, still I, relevant. I, I, everybody wants to be a servant leader. And I know, but like you said, like, it doesn't always work. Like at yeah. some point you've got to be the drill sergeant and yeah. tell people. No, what right. and, you, and you have to know, you have to be able to identify those moments and lean into that. And, like, and yeah. it, it's okay, you know, and it's okay to, to be a chameleon in that sense. You know? But I guess, I mean, I guess that doesn't necessarily say you're not a servant leader in an overarching sense of Correct. like caring about your people. It's just in that moment, I've got to do, you know, I've got yeah. to tell you what to do. I'm not going to, you know, we'll worry yeah. about your feelings later. Well, um, and you know, sometimes I say it, not necessarily about this topic, but in general, it's like, whenever I share something like that, and it's like, so if you're a servant, if you identify and you are a servant leader, it's, you know, it's kind of like, you know, like, well, I'm a servant leader. It's like, well, that can't be your excuse. That's a call to action to understand what are the, what are the pros and cons of that leadership style? Right. So never, yeah. never an excuse, but a call to action. Right. Um, 
so you talked about mentorship. You talked about Alan, I think was, yep, was yep. your mentor from many years ago telling you, you know, you're the problem, <laughs> um, which is great. Uh, it was, uh, it was not in how, the moment, but it was right. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine I, you know, yeah. that, that would shut me up too for a long time. Totally. I mean, I've had a couple of those kind of, yeah. and they're terribly, I mean, they're terribly useful and I use terrible as the, like, they're really awful to hear, but yeah. you need to hear them and totally agree. talk a little bit about mentorship. How have you tried to be a mentor? And how has mentorship played a role in your career? Yeah, well, for having Alan and, and meeting Alan, I mean, again, was one of probably the key moments of my entire career. And I, I, I've said it multiple times in this. And knowing Alan, he'll find this podcast at some point and give me feedback. And um, even though I won't <laughs> tell him about it, but um, but no, I mean, it, you know, I he made me appreciate the importance of having a mentor and somebody that you can kind of go to that really knows you well and keeps you honest and. And one of the, one of the other famous things Alan would always say to me is I would say something and I would be all fired up and he'd be like, let me walk you back off that ledge, you know? And that was his way of being like, chill out, Jason, you know? And so, you know, when you think about mentorship or finding a mentor, it's like, you really need somebody that invests enough time to really get to know you and has the, has the wherewithal to be blunt with you and call it like they see it. And you have to be ready to hear that feedback. And so I always, I always encourage people, don't find a mentor that's just going to tell you what you want to hear. You need to find somebody that cares about you because when somebody cares about you, they will give you the good and the bad and the ugly and, and, and keep you honest, if you will. I always say like, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there. I'm like going out and formally asking somebody to be your mentor. I've never asked Alan to be my mentor. It, 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 we just developed that relationship. And so I'm not opposed to that philosophically, but I think if somebody's struggling, like there's plenty of people around you that you could go to and say, Hey, I would love to just run some stuff by you, run some ideas. Like you don't even, I think sometimes when we over formalize mentoring or being a mentor, it makes it, it feels more challenging than it really is. It's like, we can really just all take a step back and say, who is somebody that I interact with every day that I really value their perspective and appreciate their input. Um, and, you know, I've been very fortunate over the years to have people, you know, work with me or you know, mentor them if you own a formal mentoring relationship agreement. And, but I have to be honest, my biggest success or the biggest feelings of success I have has always been in the informal mentoring process where someone is coming to you and it's like unspoken that they're looking for mentorship and you kind of just start working with them over and over again. And, um, you know, I think that that's always borne a lot of fruit for me. And I I've really enjoyed that aspect of, you know, my job and sharing with others, you know, is, is being able to engage with people in that informal but formal setting of of mentorship when somebody comes to you and you're like okay i think this person is looking for help yeah what what are you doing what 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 goes through your head like to uh, you know what steps do you take yeah i usually you know uh active listening is right we teach that but i also it's always like help me understand like help me understand what's going on and and tell me what and i always say this like tell me understand what's going on and tell me what you think your part in it might be And I think that's actually really important because, again, it goes back to that idea of look in the mirror. And it's like, that's my Alan way of saying to somebody, like, are you looking at yourself in this? Yeah. You know, so like, and then you work with them that way. And then honestly, even for people that report to me that come, I do the same thing. And, you know, it's really like, so what do you think you're playing a part in this? You know, and like own your piece if you are. And let's talk through that and make sure your ducks are in a row. And um, so, no, I, I definitely have a very unstructured, but intentional way that I approach kind of the mentoring conversation. Um, and, and it's probing questions and making sure that I'm encouraging them to look at themselves, you know, and, and that they get their ducks in a row. That's great. Um, so let me just conclude on this question. Um, so for students graduating from programs like HMP, 
and looking to get their career started. What advice would you give them? Yeah, it's you look, man, I I was kind of hinting at it earlier, you know, as I got outside of the shelter of Boston Children's and realized even within the emergency medicine world, how connected they all were. I mean, when I when I interviewed for PM, you know, I met with a bunch of people and all the docs, new docs that I worked with at Boston Children's, you know, they're like, oh, you know, Mark Newman. Oh, you know, you know, oh, you know, you know, and I was like, they all know each other. And so, I mean, again, it goes back to like, build your network. And I know that I feel like we've said this and we say it and we're so repetitious about it, but I feel like it's the number one thing. And, and I think there's just this hesitancy to reach out to people sometimes. And I don't, I've never been able to totally understand it because that was one thing I never suffered from. I never had that hesitancy to email somebody or ask them a question or grab some time from them on their calendar or, um, and then the other is, you know, expand the network into other areas. You know, I, I, when you think about like, even my pathway out of children's, it was like it, there were still connections all over that, that were made that I didn't even know. Um, and I think that that's like the secret, the secret is it's like, we're all humans, humans like relationships. We like interacting with other humans, whether it's virtual or in person. Um, and it's like, when you focus on just meeting and getting to know people and spending time to get to know them, you build great relationships that spill right into your professional sort of realm. And I'll, I guess I'll end with this. Uh, another teaching from Alan was at one point, I remember him saying to me, he's like, do you know your staff? And I'm like, yeah, I know him. He's like, no, no, no. Do you know them? Right. This idea, like how much do you actually know about them? Like, do you know their kids' names? Do you know? And I think when you talk about like even mentorship or getting or starting out a career, it's like really get to know people because we are relational animals. We like to have relationships. We want to get to know each other. That's how you build trust. That's how you build rapport. And I think that that gets overlooked sometimes because we try to be overly formal professional. And it's like, we're all just humans trying to help other humans, right? In healthcare. Well, that's a great place to leave this. I think all humans trying to help other humans. That's, that's really it. great, great that's way it. to say it. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Jason. This has been great. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Mark. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again soon.